This is Anthony's Room, a paperless story inspired by events that took place in Colorado in the 1940s, written by C. Avery and Maggie Milstein, and read by me, Lauren Ullman. You weren't even safe in your house anymore. The Christmas party was tonight, and Helen Peters still didn't have the dress. At last, there came a knock at the door, and she rushed to open it. Standing there was a small man in a tattered coat and beanie. Helen had trouble making out what he was saying. His voice was so cracked and childish, but she gathered he was asking for her husband. He knew the chain of hardware stores that Philip owned, the stores that had made the Peters rich. He must be looking for a job, she thought. Not everyone was finding their place in this post-war boom. But still, this was her house. She had enough on her mind. They couldn't be responsible for everybody's problems. No, Helen said. She was sorry, but her husband wasn't home. Just then, Philip called from upstairs, asking who it was. Helen and the man made eye contact as the green van turned the corner and parked outside the house. The delivery boy hurried up the walk with a big white box. Too young to have gone to war, Helen thought. Lately, that was how she looked at every young man. Either he'd gone to Europe and Japan, or been spared. Sorry for the delay, Mrs. Peters, said the boy. It's the busy time of year. Helen reached into her pocket and took out some change for a tip. The boy thanked her with a quick salute and got back in the van. The man was still standing there, staring at the box. It was tied with a big pink bow. Suddenly, it seemed indecent in her hands. Philip came down the stairs in his tuxedo and saw Helen at the door. Helen, he said. Who is it? Helen juggled the box and grabbed the doorknob, avoiding the man's eyes. It's nothing, she said. It's nobody. And she pulled the door shut behind her. As he waited for Helen to finish dressing upstairs, Philip swirled a tumbler of scotch and listened to a record of Perry Como singing Till the End of Time. All the drama of the dress struck him as ridiculous, but anything that made Helen happy was all right with him, especially this past year. The cream of Denver high society would be there tonight, and he could tell it was important to Helen that she looked beautiful and fashionable, a normal member of the community again. Philip looked out the frostbitten window, content for what felt like the first time since they received word of Anthony. It had been a hard year, watching everyone else's boys come home. All that Philip and Helen had received was a burial flag. Anthony had jumped out of that plane somewhere over France and never came down. All that training, and he might not have even pulled the cord on his parachute. He was just 18 years old.
Helen still hadn't gone into Anthony's room, sealed off like a tomb at the end of the hall upstairs. But things were slowly returning to normal. Tonight was a sign of better times to come. They could dress up and dance and have fun, as if young again. Maybe one day soon they'd open up the door to Anthony's room and breathe some life into it. As Philip knocked back the last of the scotch, there was a violent smash, jolting the needle on the record. He put the tumbler down and called Helen's name. There wasn't any answer. He hurried to the staircase and saw her sitting on the landing. Her graying hair had spilled from the bun. One of her high-heeled shoes dangled from the toes, and she stared past Philip with vacant eyes. Then the blood started oozing from her nose and dripping on the dress. Philip rushed forward just in time to catch her as the last light faded from her eyes. Philip stayed at Helen's bedside. She held on, just barely. When she slipped on the stairs and struck her head, she'd suffered severe cranial trauma and lapsed into a coma. The only sign of consciousness came late one night, when her eyelids fluttered open. The nurse shone a light into her eyes, and Helen saw birthday candles. It must be Philip and Anthony's birthdays. She would never forget her husband's face when Anthony happened to be born on his birthday. The greatest gift a man could receive, Philip said. She loved lavishing attention on her two birthday boys. She heard Philip now, asking for her. Yes, she thought. The cake was almost ready. Just hold on. A few days later, she surfaced again. The nurses were whispering to each other, their hands over their mouths. Philip wasn't there, just an empty chair at her bedside. A nurse noticed she was awake and boosted her morphine. She fell under again, and another day, maybe two, slipped by. And then a nurse propped Helen up and smoothed back her hair. A doctor was sitting on the edge of her bed, holding her hand. He cleared his throat, unsure of how much she understood, and told her that Philip was dead. He'd been murdered in their home. Her body made no response. The morphine kept her cold and still, but the word impaled her. Murder, like a pin driven through a specimen. She could not grasp it, and she could not remove it. And before she had a chance to consider what it meant, the nurses had pumped her with morphine, and she tumbled away. Over the next few days, the nurses kept her tranquilized. Every so often, her mind would surface. And that awful word would still be there, staked through her heart. When she was finally discharged from the hospital, the doctor told her to be patient. Her recovery might not be linear, he said. Cranial trauma of this kind was complex, and she could probably expect confusion, forgetfulness, even the occasional hallucination. 
If that ever happened, he said, just close your eyes and count to ten. You're only damaged, he said. You're not insane. By the time of Philip's funeral, his body had been on ice for weeks, everyone waiting for Helen to recover. Hundreds showed up to the graveside service, all his friends and employees from his chain of hardware stores. Helen sat in her wheelchair, draped in black, staring into the grave. Just before the funeral, she'd had a conversation with the detective in charge of the case, an impatient man named Rizzoli. Philip's body had been found on the kitchen floor with a single stab wound to the side, Rizzoli said. They hadn't discovered the murder weapon or footprints or any indication of an intruder. It was as if he'd been stabbed by a ghost. They had no leads. Who would ever want to hurt Philip Peters? Helen had no answers for him. Cynthia Ross organized a luncheon back at Helen's house after the funeral. The house made people nervous. First, Anthony had died, and now Philip. A stench of death pervaded the rooms and crept along the halls, and Helen's friends kept glancing around as if it might cling to them. During the war, they'd all had to live with the prospect of death. Now they wanted to forget about it. They couldn't wait to get out of here, safely back to their own houses with their own families. Helen sat by the window with Paloma, the live-in nurse who had accompanied her home from the hospital. Paloma was a gaunt bundle of nerves, her knobby fingers always playing with the cross around her neck. She felt the heavy weight of loss that pressed upon this house, but had committed to helping her patient through it, one day at a time. When the guests were gone... Paloma wrapped the unfinished food and shelved it in the fridge, and Helen went upstairs. If she clutched the banister, she could make it on her own, passing the step where she slipped, a chunk of wood still missing from the edge. She'd intended to lie down for a while, but now she found herself drawn to the door at the end of the hall. Anthony's room. She put her hand on the knob, and turned. The room was just as he'd left it, the single bed still made neatly, the white socks pennant still pinned above the dresser. Helen switched on the bedside lamp. Everything was coated in a fine layer of dust. She sat on the edge of the bed, then buried her face in the pillow, seeking his smell. She couldn't find it. This past year, she'd been preserving his room, thinking it would keep him in the house forever. But the room had almost forgotten him. And then she heard it. A hissing wheeze. She looked over her shoulder and stood, pressing herself against the dresser. It was a dead child. It was her child. It was Anthony. He was squatting in the corner of the room. His face was black, his eyes a sightless blue. 
He was wearing Anthony's pajamas with the little teddy bears. The dirt of France was on his face. Helen shut her eyes and started counting, just like the doctor had said. It took all her strength to master her mind. When she reached ten, she opened her eyes. Anthony was gone. Beneath the dust, the room was still. Some kids from the neighborhood were standing on the sidewalk and staring at the house. Through the window, Paloma saw their breath flushing out in the February air. She knew the sorts of things they were saying to each other. That this was the house where the man had been killed. That his wife never left anymore. That she was going insane. Paloma closed the curtains. She did not like to imagine that she was living in a haunted house. She picked up the phone and tried the next number on the list. Cynthia Ross answered. Oh yes, Cynthia said. She'd received the invitation, but unfortunately she and her husband were indisposed that night, and they wouldn't be able to come over after all. What about next week? Paloma asked. Helen would love to see you. It would really raise her spirits. That's very kind, Cynthia said, but they would be in Boulder next week. In fact, they would be in Boulder all next month. Paloma hung up and crossed Cynthia's name off the list. No one visited the house anymore. No one but Detective Rizzoli. Every week... He came by to update Helen on the investigation, but there wasn't much to report. The crime scene had been so clean, it offered no clues. They'd rounded up some vagrants on the edge of town and questioned them, but everyone had an alibi. No one had a motive. The random nature of this murder was starting to annoy him. After calling Cynthia, Paloma went to the kitchen she opened the door of the icebox and heard steps upstairs. Helen shouldn't be up. She was meant to be resting. But when Paloma went upstairs, Helen was right where she'd left her, sleeping peacefully in bed. There was a click, like the gentle closing of a door. Fidgeting with the cross around her neck, Paloma went down the hall. She stood outside of Anthony's room, hesitating. Then she turned the knob and let the door fall open. No one was there. Paloma? She gasped and spun around. Helen had come up behind her in a nightgown. What are you doing? She asked. Paloma said she thought she'd heard a noise. Helen gave her a quizzical look searching behind her eyes. It made Paloma uncomfortable. It's only your imagination, Helen said. If it happens again, just close your eyes and count to ten. The next morning, Helen overheard Paloma speaking on the phone in Italian. Helen couldn't understand the conversation, but Paloma's voice was rushed and anxious. So low, it was almost a whisper. 
When she hung up, Helen entered the room and asked who that was. Paloma smiled awkwardly and said it was her grandmother. That afternoon, Helen saw Paloma going through some photo albums. She had no idea where the nurse had found the old, heavy books, all bound in leather and sticky with dust. Paloma turned the pages, a serious focus in her eyes, and every so often, she slid a picture from its gold corner tabs and set it aside. What are you doing with those? Helen asked. The nurse put a hand to her chest. She'd been shaky ever since she thought she heard something upstairs. I thought I might frame some pictures, Paloma said. It was her grandmother's idea, she added. And then she hesitated, as if choosing her words very carefully. The pictures would bring some warmth to the house, she said. It would be full of life again. In another couple of days, the frames almost completely covered the walls. Pictures of Helen and Philip on their wedding day. Pictures of Anthony in his Little League uniform. Pictures of Helen presenting a shared birthday cake to the two of them. The candles lighting up their faces. Now you couldn't go anywhere in the house without a pair of eyes following you. At first, it made Helen almost shy. She couldn't meet the gaze of her husband or son. But gradually, whatever spell Paloma hoped the pictures would cast began to work. The house really did feel warmer, nestled in the love of the faces in the frames. One morning, when Paloma said she was going for groceries, Helen announced that she would like to go with her. It came as a surprise. Helen hadn't left the house in weeks, but now she wore mink fur and handsome black leather shoes. When they arrived at the local grocery store, it appeared to Helen like the marketplace of some exotic distant land. The apples and carrots and boxes of cereal had a fresh and vivid color. Just walking the aisles made Helen feel as if she were returning to society. The winter of imprisonment was over. She was free. Lining up to pay, Helen recognized the woman ahead of them, Cynthia Ross. The last time Helen saw her was at the funeral luncheon. A smile lit up Helen's face. Things could be normal again. Helen, Cynthia said. How wonderful. You look beautiful. I've been meaning to visit you. I'll call you. Paloma drove Helen home in silence, not mentioning that Cynthia had told her she would be in Boulder this month. She didn't want to spoil the unsteady progress Helen seemed to be making, but she knew Cynthia would never come. She'd seen the frightened look in Cynthia's eyes, how they darted around Helen's face, assessing the damage. As soon as she was inside, Helen sensed something strange. A kind of chilly absence in the house. She set the bag on the kitchen counter, turned around, and headed back for the door. Paloma was frozen in the foyer, clutching her crucifix. Her eyes were closed, but she was not counting to ten. Ten.
She was muttering an Italian prayer. What is it? Helen said. What's wrong? But Paloma didn't need to answer. Helen looked at the wall. The pictures were in the frames, but everywhere Philip once appeared, his face was gone. Erased somehow. Just a violent blur where his smile had been. Now the whole house was filled with faceless photographs. Paloma still hadn't moved, lost in a trance of prayer. Paloma? Helen said, tugging at her sleeve. The nurse opened her eyes, and the tears escaped. I'm sorry, she said in a pleading voice. I can't stay here any longer. I have to go. Please, let me go. She turned to leave, and a bolt of panic shot through Helen. She grabbed the nurse by the wrist and said, No, please stay. You have to stay. I need you here. Just look, she went on. They were old photographs. They never should have been exposed to light. Philip's face must have faded, bleached out by the sun. The house wasn't haunted. They just had to get a grip on their imaginations. The women hugged each other for a long time, Paloma sniffling in Helen's fur. They did not look at the walls. Okay, Paloma said. She would try to be brave. She would stay. Helen removed the fur and settled back into her seat at the window. Paloma took all the frames down, exposing the blank white walls and they were alone in the house once again. Paloma helped Helen into the front seat of Detective Rizzoli's car. She wanted to accompany Helen, but the detective said he didn't want Helen's opinion to be influenced by anyone else. He'd been working on this lineup for weeks, a collection of men with connections to Philip Peters. One of the men was of particular interest, His name was Spencer Houghton, a former private of the U.S. Army who had been fired from one of Philip's stores. Under questioning, Spencer revealed an abiding anger toward his former employer, a fantasy of humiliating him in some irrevocable way. Whoever killed Philip had definitely cased the Peters' house for a long time, otherwise it would be impossible to leave a crime scene that pristine. Rizzoli's hope was that Helen would recognize Spencer. Maybe a memory would surface of him hanging around in the days before the murder. Maybe Rizzoli could put this case behind him. Beautiful neighborhood, Rizzoli said as they drove down Helen's street. Big houses, good families. You got many friends around here? Helen was staring out the window at the houses. Mrs. Peters, he said. I used to, she said. I used to know everyone. The detective made to speak again, some joke to lighten the mood. But a glance at the widow made him keep his mouth shut. He didn't like getting involved in people's personal lives. The lineup was a bust. 
Rizzoli hustled his suspects into the room, and Helen looked them over from the other side of the one-way mirror. It was right there for the taking, a solution to the mystery. If only she'd say the right thing. But Helen only shook her head. They drove back to the house in silence. There was nothing to say. The whole case was infuriating, one dead end after another. Rizzoli wasn't even sure he would see Helen again. What was the point? He'd be back to the drawing board tomorrow, and unless a miracle breakthrough occurred, this case was almost certain to go cold. He parked out front and waited for Paloma to come and help Helen inside. A minute passed, and then another. Rizzoli glared at the house and honked the horn. Nothing happened. With a sigh, he got out, helped Helen from the car, and they approached the house together. Helen put her key in the lock and opened the door, and suddenly put her hand to her mouth. Rizzoli rushed inside. Paloma was lying at the bottom of the stairs, face down in a black pool of blood. Helen backed against the wall and closed her eyes and counted to ten, but it didn't go away. Rizzoli turned Paloma over and revealed the wound in her stomach, the intestine bulging out. Whatever Paloma feared would happen had happened. Now her mouth hung open in a silent scream, and the crucifix dripped with blood. The police made a thorough search of the house, just as they had when Philip died. But it only left Rizzoli with another mystery. No forced entry. Nothing stolen. A week after the murder, Rizzoli returned to the house. It was spring outside, the air filled with bird call, the last remnants of the winter snow melting in the shade. But the windows of the house were still sealed, and an animal musk hung in the air. He didn't like the look of Helen at all. Her cheeks were caved in, and her eyes seemed huge in their hollow sockets. Without the nurse, she probably wasn't taking good care of herself, but he didn't want to get involved. Normally, he would drink a cup of coffee and eat a plate of cookies while they talked. But Helen didn't even offer him a glass of water. They sat by the window, and he gave her the usual empty update on the progress of the case. His best lead had gone absolutely cold, he said. Spencer Houghton... The disgruntled former employee had been standing in the police lineup at the very moment of Paloma's murder. Suddenly, Helen looked at him and said, Do you believe in ghosts, detective? He laughed. It was a running joke in the department that a ghost must be responsible. But the look in Helen's eyes told him this wasn't a joke. No, he said. Of course not. Paloma did, Helen said. Rizzoli cleared his throat. And what about you, Mrs. Peters? 
She peered out the window. I've seen one, she said. I thought it wasn't real. And now? She didn't answer. Where did you see it? He asked. They went upstairs, and he followed her to the end of the hall. This was Anthony's room, she said. He nodded. He knew all about her dead son, a paratrooper killed in the war. This whole conversation was insane. He should get out of here. He had work to do. And yet, when Helen opened the door, for a moment, he really did expect to see a boy in there, not just this empty room. Helen believed she had the answers Rizzoli wanted. If he would only open his mind, he might see how, when no one was looking. The boy crept along the halls and squatted in the corners, watching. She was sure of it. It was her son who killed Philip, and it was her son who killed Paloma. She was finding traces of his ghost everywhere. Vases and cups were being moved, almost imperceptibly, and apples in the fruit bowl had tiny bite marks where his teeth had plunged into the skin. So what was he waiting for? Shouldn't she be next? It was as if he wanted to trap her in a pain worse than death, a total isolation, a life in the cage of this house. Days turned into nights. Her clothes began to reek. She stopped eating. Fruit rotted in the bowl, and flies swooped through the air. Helen looked at herself in the mirror. Only the eyes seemed faintly alive. Everything else was already dead, just a thin layer of skin masking the skull. And then the day came. Philip and Anthony shared birthday. She woke up that morning somehow knowing it was today. She did not bother to check. Everything spoke of it. The halls were especially long, stretching out into infinity, and the rooms especially silent. Helen went stalking through the house, expecting to turn a corner and find her two birthday boys, their grins covered in frosting. But even the memories seemed to be receding. Loss drained the color from whatever joy this house had held. No, she would not wait any longer. If Anthony would not take her himself, she would do it. She snatched a knife from the kitchen and went to his room. On the edge of the bed, she sat with the blade in her hand. She pressed its cold edge to the soft flesh of her wrist. Just draw the knife along the vein, and she would not be alone any longer. She gripped the handle and pressed harder. Hard enough to feel the sharpness of the edge. Hard enough for it to hurt. But something stopped her. She hated this in herself. This awful will to live. And then she heard it. The footsteps. But they weren't in the room, or in the hall. 
they crept across the ceiling above her. She traced it over to the closet. Its door was open. Suddenly, there was a scraping sound, and she watched, frozen on the edge of the bed, as a tiny hatch swung down. It didn't make sense. She had never seen the hatch before. She closed her eyes and counted to ten, and when she looked again, he was squatting in the corner. It was him. The blackened face. The knotted hair. It was Anthony. He stood and started edging along the wall toward the door. My baby, she said. Happy birthday. With the knife in her hand, she made to embrace him. But as soon as she stepped forward, he bolted from the room. Helen shouted his name and hobbled after him, pleading for him to stop. At the top of the stairs, he glanced back and their eyes met. And she saw the human look of terror as he missed the first step and threw a hand out for balance and fell back. There was a clatter of limbs as he tumbled to the landing and smashed against the wall. Then he lay there, unconscious, his breath wheezing out. Helen knelt down beside him. He was not a hallucination, and he was not a ghost. Where he'd struck the wall, the plaster was cracked. She could smell the filth caked to his body. She rushed to the washroom and soaked a cloth and returned to the landing. She touched the cloth to his face, and it went instantly dark with grime. Helen wiped the cheek, and very gradually revealed the face underneath. It wasn't Anthony. It was a man. He must have been forty, at least, though his body was malnourished and small. Suddenly, his eyes shot open, and they looked at each other. A memory surfaced. It was the night of the accident. She had gone to the door, hoping for the dress, and standing in the cold was a man. It's nothing, she'd said. It's nobody. And she pulled the door shut. The frost of that night suddenly ran through her. Now she knew what it meant to have these houses turn against you, to have all the doors close off. This wasn't a beautiful neighborhood at all, she thought. The people in the houses did not love each other. Of this she was totally certain. At the slightest sign of pain or grief or loneliness, they abandoned one another. She found a strength she didn't know she possessed. She gathered this little body in her arms. It was summer and every living thing looked for shade. Detective Rizzoli pulled up outside the Peters' house, lumbered up the walk, and knocked on the door. He peered at the sun with a grimace. This was one of his last errands, and he'd been postponing it for days. But then the door opened, and standing before him was a woman transformed. She looked years younger, the flesh of her face filled in, a bright summer dress swaying at her knees. Rizzoli couldn't help but smile as she invited him in and offered him a glass of lemonade. Sipping the drink, 
Rizzoli explained that he and his wife were moving to Utah. He just wanted Helen to know that a different detective would be handling the case. What he didn't say was that the case had gone totally cold. Unless some new lead opened up, no one at the department would be working on it anymore. It was the worst failure of his career, and it pained him that he would be leaving unfinished business behind. But Helen only smiled and squeezed his hand, thanking him for all his hard work. At the front door, she wished him the best of luck in Utah. I'm sorry, he said with sudden shyness. I never like to ask personal questions, but what's your secret, Mrs. Phillips? Helen blinked, confused. My secret? I don't have any secret. But everything's changed in here, he said. How? Helen smiled and said it was simple, really. A doctor had told her once, whenever something bad happened, just close your eyes and count to ten. That's it, Rizzoli said. That's it. She closed the door and locked it at once, then watched the detective make his way to the car. The moment he got in, the pleasant social smile drained from her face. She took an apple from the fruit bowl, climbed the stairs, and went along the hall to Anthony's room. He was lying in bed in a pair of pajamas, the ones with the little teddy bears. He smiled as she entered, and the joy she felt for that flash of rotten yellow teeth almost brought her to her knees. He was perfect. He completed this room. She sat on the edge of the bed and offered him the apple. He took it in both hands, as if accepting something sacred, and buried his teeth in the skin. Helen sat there stroking his little shaved head as he gnashed the fruit, his lips hungrily smacking. She remembered the day she washed him, how she cupped the gnarled foot in her hands, lathed the water over the toes, and scrubbed them clean. He'd been so filthy, living in the crawl space above the closet. From that day onward, she vowed that her little boy would never be alone again. Outside on the street, Detective Rizzoli was sitting in the car. He couldn't take his eyes off the house. There was an unshakable feeling that he'd missed something, an answer to his questions. He had to know the secret of this house. He couldn't leave without it. He grabbed the handle and pushed open the door, and then stopped. He could hear what his wife would say. He had to let it go. Think of Utah. Think of the future. Rizzoli closed the door and started the engine. It was an incredible thing, he thought, how the human heart can heal. Just close your eyes and count to ten.
You've been listening to Paperless, an audio magazine by Vespucci.